0: Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 295. Today's big Bible question, does God get angry? So hello, friends, and happy weekend to you. I would like to give a shout out to the most generous and awesome person, a listener of the Bible Reading Podcast, who actually uh, sent to our house a giant box of cereal um, as a very, very kind, I don't know, gift, um, encouragement, let's go with encouragement. And when I say giant box of cereal, I guess it was actually a giant box with like, um, oh, nine or ten individual boxes of cereal in it. I love cereal and this has just melted my heart and what a wonderful gift and a great encouragement So thank you, friend, who did that. I suspect I know who you are, but as you remained anonymous in your letter, I will um, not speculate publicly as to your identity, but thank you from the bottom of my heart for such kind encouragement. As usual today, since it's the weekend, we plan to have two shorter episodes for Saturday and Sunday and i say that we plan to do this because that's always my thought for the weekend episodes but it doesn't always work out like that who knows we'll see our bible readings today include first kings chapter 20 psalms 106 which is our focus chapter daniel chapter 2 and first thessalonians 3 today we're focusing on the character of god how can we know god by the way i've heard people say things frequently that sort of comes out like this My God would never, you know, and then they say something that they can't conceive of God doing. Some of these statements, I suppose, are fairly accurate. For instance, you could say, my God would never sin. And that is a completely 100% accurate statement. However, most of the statements that I've heard follow the phrase, my God would never are usually not biblically accurate at all. Which brings us to a very good question. How can we know God at all? How can we answer the Bible question today? And of course, I think the answer primarily to both of those questions is by turning to God's written revelation of himself, the word of God, the Bible. All scripture is God breathed and accurate. And this we know, and thus we know God by his word and not by our opinions. I think if you ask the average person who has great respect and knowledge of the Bible, so I guess that's really not an average person, but if you lined up a hundred people who love the word of God and know the word of God and you ask them, does God get angry? I think almost a hundred percent of them, if not a hundred percent of them exactly would say absolutely he does without blinking or hesitating because the Bible is really, really clear on that question. On the other hand, Ask the average man or woman on the streets, however, and you'd probably get a negative answer. Uh They would say, no, I don't think God gets angry. Because as we've discussed before, many, many people view God as something like a kindly old grandfather who just loves everybody no matter what and is not particularly passionate and certainly not angry. That portrayal and understanding of God, however, is really quite foreign to the way God is portrayed in the Bible and the way that he reveals himself to us by his words and actions. So God is holy and therefore God is angry at sin. The only righteous and just response to sin is righteous anger. We see this in passages like Psalm 711. That's not the only one, but there's tons of them. But Psalm 711 says God is a just judge and God is angry with the wicked every day. Well, that kind of settles the big Bible question right up front, right? If God is angry every day, then yes, God does get angry. So let's read our psalm today. And, uh, our focus passage and see how God does get angry. And you might be thinking, well, I don't want to listen to a whole podcast about the anger of God. Don't worry. I think there's actually lots of redemptive encouragement in the fact that God gets angry. For one, it shows how serious sin is, and if you've ever been hurt or devastated by somebody, I think you might understand and even desire that God's response would be a response of just anger. But when we get into it, we're going to find that God's anger is kind of different from ours. Anyway, Psalm chapter 106, verse 1. Hallelujah. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His faithful love endures forever. Who can declare the Lord's mighty acts or proclaim all the praise due him? How happy are those who uphold justice, who practice righteousness at all times. Remember me, Lord, when you show favor to your people, come to me with your salvation so that I may enjoy the prosperity of your chosen ones. Rejoice in the joy of your nation. "...and boast about your heritage. Both we and our ancestors have sinned, we've done wrong, and have acted wickedly. Our ancestors in Egypt did not grasp the significance of your wondrous works or remember your many acts of faithful love. Instead, they rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, to make his power known." He rebuked the Red Sea and it dried up. He led them through the depths as through a desert. He saved them from the power of the adversary. He redeemed them from the power of the enemy. Water covered their foes. Not one of them remained. Then they believed his promises and sang his praise. They soon forgot his works and would not wait for his counsel. They were seized with craving in the wilderness and tested God in the desert. He gave them what they asked for, but sent a wasting disease among them. In the camp, they were envious of Moses and of Aaron, the Lord's holy one. The earth opened up and swallowed Dathan. It covered the assembly of Abiram. Fire blazed throughout their assembly. Flames consumed the wicked. At Horeb, they made a calf and worshipped the cast metal image. They exchanged their glory for the image of a grass-eating ox. They forgot God, their Savior, who did great things in Egypt wondrous works in the land of Ham, awe-inspiring acts at the Red Sea. So he said he would have destroyed them if Moses, his chosen one, had not stood before him in the breach to turn his wrath away from destroying them. They despised the pleasant land and did not believe his promise. They grumbled in their tents and did not listen to the Lord. So he raised his hand against them with an oath that he would make them fall in the desert and would disperse their descendants among the nations, scattering them throughout the lands. They aligned themselves with Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to lifeless gods. They angered the Lord with their deeds and a plague broke out against them. But Phinehas stood up and intervened and the plague was stopped. It was credited to him as righteousness throughout all generations to come. They angered. The Lord at the waters of Meribah and Moses suffered because of them, for they embittered his spirit, and he spoke rashly with his lips. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord had commanded them, but mingled with the nations and adopted their ways. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and daughters to demons. They shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. So the land became polluted with blood." They defiled themselves by their actions and prostituted themselves by their deeds. Therefore, the Lord's anger burned against his people, and he abhorred his own inheritance. He handed them over to the nations. Those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were subdued under their power. He rescued them many times, but they continued to rebel deliberately and were beaten down by their iniquity." When he heard their cry, he took note of their distress, remembered his covenant with them, and relented according to the abundance of his faithful love. He caused them to be pitied before all their captors. Save us, Lord our God, and gather us from the nations, so that we may give thanks to your holy name and rejoice in your praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say amen. Hallelujah. So in this psalm, I think that verses 40 through 44 actually give us one of the more concise and also kind of full, like a great big picture of the character of God in the Bible. Uh, And so we see uh, it says, Therefore the Lord's anger burned against his people, and he abhorred his own inheritance. He handed them over to the nations. Those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were subdued under their power." He rescued them many times, but they continued to rebel deliberately and were beaten down by their iniquity. When he heard their cry, he took note of their distress, remembered his covenant with them, and relented according to the abundance of his faithful love. So does God get angry? He does. But God is also abounding in faithful love, and therefore He rescues His people over and over and over again, even when they've been unfaithful. And any, even when, and, and understand this, it's one thing to forgive somebody for being unfaithful to you. But it's difficult when you know they're going to do it again and again and again and again. And still God rescues his people. And still he goes after them when he knows they will be unfaithful again. God rescues and relents because he has an abundance of faithful love. And we know that. And we're not talking about the love of God today. We're talking about the good and wholesome anger of God. Does God get angry? Absolutely. Yes, says the word of God. No question about it. Now, here's the more important question. Does God get angry like we get angry? And when I think about some of the most angry angry times of my life, I can think of a couple of times where I was seething mad uh just in the most irrational of ways. One time I was trying to connect a dryer hose to a um, to a, uh, outlet to outs, the outside. I don't even know what you would call that part of it. The dryer vent that goes to the outside. I was trying to connect one of those uh, flexible dryer hoses to that vent. It was in an older house and it was the, the, the outlet, the dryer vent to the outside was way too short and it didn't fit well. And I, it was a hot Alabama day. I was crammed in the back behind the dryer trying to get it to fit. The screw for the uh, flexible hose was not Phillips head for some reason. Obviously, some sort of Satanist had set it up with a flat head. And so the screwdriver kept slipping as I was trying to tighten it on this way too small nub of a dryer vent. And I got furious and just pounded the dryer. I was the only one home. Pounded the dryer and screamed in frustration. Does God get angry like that? No, he doesn't. I can think of another time I was super angry. It was in my younger days. I think I was in college. I was uh, driving home late at night. Uh, I think maybe I was running late or trying to get somewhere. I don't remember where. A group of teenagers in front of me were going like really, really set low. And I could uh, see into the back of their car. There was a group of, I think, like three or four guys in the back seat crammed in. And uh, so I flash. I didn't honk at him. I flashed my lights at him. you know, like speed up guys, because I think they were going like half of the speed limit. And when I flashed my lights, they started going about 10 miles an hour, no passing lane. Uh, so I couldn't pass them. I mean, I guess I could have, but that would have been illegal. Like ten miles an hour up a hill that was like I think two or three miles long. So, so they were going so painfully slow, and the whole time they were like giving me the bird in the back of their uh, the the back of their the window, like all of them, and rotating it around. I was furious, and if I could shoot laser beams out of my eyes. I really think I would have melted them right there on the spot. But does God get angry like that? No, I was being petty. Now, those guys were being jerks, of course, but I was just incensed because it was personally inconvenient to me. I don't think God gets angry like that. So does God get angry like we get angry? And the answer to that question is no, he does not. Here's our friends from gotquestions.org to help us understand. We don't need to equate God's anger with our own human experiences of anger. When we look at the Bible, Ephesians 4, 26-27 tells us it's possible to experience anger but not sin. And we know God can't sin so that we, we know that his anger is righteous, unlike the common experience of anger in ourselves. As James one twenty says, human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. The context of the verses of God getting angry reveals why he gets angry. God gets angry when there's a violation of his character. God is righteous, just, and holy, and none of these attributes can be compromised. God was angry with the nation of Israel and with Israel's kings every time they turned away from obeying him. The wicked practices of the nations in Canaan, such as child sacrifice and sexual perversion, aroused God's anger to the point that he commanded Israel to completely destroy them, every man, woman, child, and animal, to remove wickedness from the land. Just as a parent becomes angry at anything that would hurt his children, So God's anger is directed at that which would harm his people in their relationship with him. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live, says Ezekiel 33.11. In the New Testament, Jesus gets angry with the religious teachers and leaders of that day for using religion for their own gain and keeping people in bondage. Romans 1.18 tells us God's anger or wrath comes against the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their righteousness. So God gets angry at the wickedness in people, and he opposes that wickedness in an effort to turn them from evil that they might find true life and freedom in him. Even in his anger, God's motivation is love for people to restore the relationship that sin destroyed. Now, while God must bring justice and retribution for sin, those who have accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior are no longer under God's wrath for sin. Why? Because Jesus experienced the full measure of the wrath of God on the cross so that we won't have to. This is what is meant by Jesus' death being a propitiation or satisfaction. Romans 8, 1-4 through 4 puts it like this, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be his sin offering." And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So does God get angry like we do? And we can go back to Ezekiel thirty-three, eleven, where God says, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. And so the answer is no, he doesn't. Most of us are enemies. We want them to suffer God's enemies and God's, those that sin against God and rebel against him, he wants them to return and repent and be cleansed in relationship with him. So that's a major difference between our anger and the anger of God. So does God get angry? He does. Does he get angry like us? He does not. Is he also good and kind and loving? He is. And to fully understand who God is, we need to understand that God is holy and God is love. God abounds in justice and God abounds in faithful love. Amen. We continue with 1 Kings chapter 20, verse 1, where we are going to see another instance of God's anger at those who disobey him. Now King Hadad of Aram assembled his entire army. Thirty-two kings, along with horses and chariots, were with him. He marched up, besieged Samaria, and fought against it. He sent messengers into the city to King Ahab of Israel and said to him, This is what Ben-Hadad says, Your silver and your gold are mine, and your best wives and children are mine as well. Then the king of Israel answered, "Uh, Just as you say, my lord the king, I am yours along with all that I have. The messengers then returned and says, This is what Ben-Hadad says. I have sent messengers to you, saying you are to give me your silver, your gold, your wives, and your children. But at this time tomorrow I will send my servants to you, and they will search your palace and your servants' houses. They will lay their hands on and take away whatever is precious to you. Then the king of Israel called for all the elders of the land and said, recognize that this one is only looking for trouble, for he demanded my wives, my children, my silver, and my gold, and I didn't turn him down. All of the elders and all the people said to him, Don't listen or agree. So he said to Bin hadads messengers, Say to my lord, the king, everything you demanded of your servant the first time I will do, but this thing I cannot do. So the messengers left and took word back to him. Then bin hadad sent messengers to him and said, May the gods punish me and do so severely if Samaria's dust amounts to a handful for each of the people who follow me. The king of Israel answered, Say this, Don't let the one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. When Ben-Hadad heard this response, while he and the kings were drinking in their quarters, he said to his servants, Take your positions. So they took their positions against the city. A prophet approached King Ahab of Israel and said, This is what the Lord says. Do you see this whole huge army? Watch, I am handing it over to you today so that you may know that I am the Lord. Ahab asked, By whom? And the prophet said, This is what the Lord says by the young men of the provincial leaders. Then he asked, Who is to start the battle? And he said, You. So Ahab mobilized the young men of the provincial leaders, and there were 232. And then After them, he mobilized all the Israelite troops, 7,000. They marched out at noon while Ben-Hadad and the 32 kings who were helping him were getting drunk in their quarters. The young men of the provincial leaders marched out first. Then Ben-Hadad sent out scouts and they reported to him saying, men are marching out of Samaria. So he said, if they have marched out in peace, take them alive. And if they have marched out for battle, take them alive. The young men of the provincial leaders and the army behind them marched out from the city, and each one struck down his opponent. So the Arameans fled, and Israel pursued them. But King Hadad of Aram escaped on a horse with his cavalry. Then the king of Israel marched out and attacked the cavalry in a chariots, and he inflicted a severe slaughter on Aram. The prophet approached the king of Israel and said to him, Go and strengthen yourself, then consider carefully what you should do, for in the spring the king of Aram will attack you. Now the king of Aram's servants said to him, Their gods are gods of the hill country. That's why they were stronger than we were. Instead, we should fight with them on the plain. Then we will certainly be stronger than they are. Also do this, remove each king from his position and appoint captains in their place. Raise another army for yourself like the one you lost. Horse for horse, chariot for chariot, and let's fight with them on the plain, and we will certainly be stronger than they are. The king listened to them and did it. In the spring, Ben-Hadad mobilized the Arameans and went up to Aphek to battle Israel. The Israelites mobilized, gathered supplies, and went to fight them. The Israelites camped in front of them like two little flocks of goats, while the Arameans filled the landscape. Then the man of God approached and said to the king of Israel, This is what the Lord says, because the Arameans have said the Lord is a God of the mountains and not a God of the valleys, I will hand over this whole huge army to you, then you will know that I am the Lord. They camped opposite each other for seven days. On the seventh day, the battle took place and the Israelites struck down the Arameans, 100,000 foot soldiers in one day. The ones who remained fled into the city of Aphek and the wall fell on those 27,000 remaining men. Ben-Hadad also fled and went into an inner city, inner room in the city. His servant said to him, Consider this, we have heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings, so let's put sackcloth around our waists and ropes around our heads and let's go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So they dressed with sackcloth around their waists and ropes around their heads, went to the king of Israel and said, Your servant, Ben-Hadad, says, Please spare my life. So, he said, Is he still alive? He is my brother. Now the men were looking for a sign of hope, so they quickly picked up on this and said, said, Yes, it is your brother, Ben-Hadad. Then he said, Go and bring him. So ben came out to him and Ahad had him come up into the chariot. Then ben said to him, I restore to you the cities that my father took from your father, and you may set up marketplaces for yourself in Damascus like my father set up in Samaria. Ahab responded, On the basis of this treaty I release you. So he made a treaty with him and released him. One of the sons of the prophets said to the fellow prophet by the word of the Lord, Strike me, but the man refused to strike him, and he told him, Because you did not listen to the Lord, mark my words. When you leave me, a lion will kill you. And when he left him, a lion attacked and killed him. The prophet found another man and said to him, Strike me, so... The man struck him, inflicting a wound. Then the prophet went and waited for the king on the road. He disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes. As the king was passing by, he cried out to the king and said, "'Your servant marched out into the middle of a battle. Suddenly a man turned aside and brought someone to me and said, "'Guard this man. "'If he is ever missing, it will be your life in place of his life, "'or you will weigh out seventy-five pounds of silver.' But while your servant was busy here and there, he disappeared. The king of Israel said to him, That will be your sentence. You yourself have decided it. He quickly removed the bandage from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized that he was one of the prophets. And the prophet said to him, This is what the Lord says, because you released from your hand the man I had set apart for destruction, it will be your life in place of his life and your people in place of his people. So the king of Israel left for home, resentful and angry, and he entered Samaria. Daniel, chapter 2, verse 1. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams that troubled him and sleep deserted him. So the king gave orders to summon the magicians, mediums, sorcerers, and Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. When they came and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream and am anxious to understand it. The Chaldeans spoke to the king, May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will give the interpretation. The king replied to the Chaldeans, My word is final. If you don't tell me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be made a garbage dump. But if you make the dream and its interpretation known to me, you will receive gifts, a reward, and a great honor from me. So make the dream and its interpretation known to me. And they answered a second time, May the king tell the dream to his servants and we will make known the interpretation. The king replied, I know for certain you are trying to gain some time because you see that my word is final. If you don't tell me the dream, there is one decree for you. You have conspired to tell me something false or a fraudulent until the situation changes. So tell me the dream and I will know you can give me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king, No one on earth can make known what the king requests. Consequently, no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked anything like this of any magician, medium, or Chaldean. What the king is asking is so difficult that no one can make it known to him except the gods whose dwelling is not with mortals. Because of this, the king became violently angry and gave orders to destroy all the wise men of Babylon, The decree was issued that the wise men were to be executed, and they searched for Daniel and his friends to execute them. Then Daniel responded with tact and discretion to Ariok, the captain of the king's guard who had gone out to execute the wise men of Babylon. He asked Ariok, the king's officer, why is the decree from the king so harsh? Then Arioch explained the situation to Daniel, so Daniel went and asked the king to give him some time so that he could give the king the interpretation. Then Daniel went to his house and told his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter, urging them to ask the God of the heavens for mercy concerning this mystery so Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of Babylon's wise men. The mystery was then revealed to Daniel in a vision at night, and Daniel praised the God of the heavens and declared... May the name of God be praised forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. He changes the times and seasons. He removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and not light dwells with him. I offer thanks and praise to you, God of my ancestors, because you have given me wisdom and power, and now you have let me know what we asked of you, for you have let us know the king's mystery. Therefore Daniel sent to Arioch, whom the king had assigned to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He came and said to him, Don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king, and I will give him the interpretation. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said to him, I have found a man among the Judean exiles who can let the king know this interpretation. The king said in reply to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, "'Are you able to tell me the dream I had and its interpretation?' Daniel answered the king, "'No wise man, medium, magician, or diviner is able to make known to the king the mystery he asked about, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has let King Nebuchadnezzar know what will happen in the last days. Your dream and the visions that came into your mind as you lay in bed were these.' Your majesty, while you were in bed, thoughts came to your mind about what will happen in the future. The revealer of mysteries has let you know what will happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but in order that the interpretation might be made known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. "'Your Majesty, as you were watching, suddenly a colossal statue appeared. "'That statue, tall and dazzling, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was terrifying.' The head of the statue was pure gold, its chest and arms were silver, its stomach and thighs were bronze, its legs were iron, and its feet were partly iron and partly fired clay. As you were watching, a stone broke off without a hand touching it, struck the statue on its feet of iron and fired clay, and crushed them. Then the iron, the fired clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were shattered and become like chaff from the summer threshing floors." The wind carried them away, and not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we tell the king its interpretation. Your majesty, you are king of kings. The God of the heavens has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and glory. Wherever people live, or wild animals, or birds of the sky, He has handed them over to you and made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. After you, there will rise another kingdom inferior to yours, and then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which will rule the whole earth. A fourth kingdom will be as strong as iron, for iron crushes and shatters everything, and like iron that smashes, it will crush and smash all the others. You saw the feet and toes, partly of a potter's fired clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided king kingdom, though some of the strength of iron will be in it. You saw the iron mixed with clay, and that the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly fired clay. Part of the kingdom will be strong and part will be brittle. You saw the iron mixed with clay. The peoples will mix with one another, but will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with fired clay. In the days of those kings the God of heavens will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed and this kingdom will not be left to another people it will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end but will itself endure forever you saw a stone break off from the mountain without a hand touching it and it crushed the iron bronze fired clay silver and gold The great God has told the king what will happen in the future. The dream is certain, and its interpretation reliable. Then Nebuchadnezzar fell face down, worshipped Daniel, and gave orders to present an offering and incense to him. The king said to Daniel, "'Your God is indeed God of gods, Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, since you were able to reveal this mystery.'" Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many generous gifts. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and chief governor over all the wise men of Babylon. At Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to manage the province of Babylon, but Daniel remained at the king's court. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 1, Therefore, when we could no longer stand it, We thought it was better to be left alone in Athens, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you concerning your faith, so that no one will be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. In fact, when we were with you, we told you in advance that we were going to experience affliction, and as you know, it happened. For this reason, when I could no longer stand it, I also sent him to find out about your faith, fearing that the tempter had tempted you and that our labor might be for nothing. But now Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news about your faith and love. He reported that you always have good memories of us and that you long to see us as we also long to see you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and affliction, we were encouraged about you through your faith. For now we live, if you stand firm in the Lord. How can we thank God for you in return for all the joy we experience before our God because of you, as we pray very earnestly night and day to see you face to face and to complete what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone just as we do for you. May he make your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Amen. Well, friends, I hope that today is a blessed Saturday for you. Good day to you, and Godspeed.